Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to StarTalk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City. Today, I'm joined by my co-host... Comedian Chuck Nice. Hey, Neil. Chuck, are you nice today? I am very nice today, my friend. Are you nice all the time? Oh, well, no, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes Chuck is naughty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's when we like him best. There you go. So, Chuck, I think you're the right age to be my co-host for this. I'm not saying how old I am, but I know how old you are. I'm a space baby. You're space baby. I'm a space okay, baby. Today, we're talking about the history of space exploration. Right on. And that has a birthday, like anybody does. Mm -hmm. What's the birthday? Uh, let me think. It, would that be... July 21, 1969? No, that's the birth of when we stopped, when we stopped. going to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> no. That, that, that when we, I love the way you say the birth of when we stopped. Yeah, the, the birth, that was the beginning of the, the beginning end. of the end yes. of the space uh, program. It wasn't even the end of the beginning. It was the, the beginning, beginning of, the of the end. So when is the actual birthday? Would that be, now, would that be Luna 2? No, no, Sputnik, for goodness sake. Oh, okay, sake. so it's Sputnik. Yeah, of course. Okay, okay. Sputnik, if you want to say Sputnik. it right. Well, I have slotted today an interview with Professor John Logston. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University. He's one of the founding, uh, he's the founding director of the Space Policy Institute there. Cool. And he's one of the world's experts on the history of space exploration. Wow. So I just had to get, I just had to extract all I could out of him. Very distinguished. And we, he came to my office for it and let's get right to some of those clips. Sounds good. And then we can react <laughs> when they return. So this first clip, I asked him about the origins of the space age. Let's see what he says. The origins of the space age go, I mean, there was a Russian Tsiolkovsky, a German, Oberth. These are famous, these are the, key people in the early 20th engine, century. Early engineers. Yeah. And Did we have one of those? And we had Robert Goddard. Robert Goddard, good. All right. Okay. So, I mean, there were traditions of thinking about space in all of these countries, and then Rocket clubs, space clubs in all of these countries. So Russia, Germany, America. Yeah. Okay. World War II led to the development of a functioning rocket, the V2. V2. But it was used as a missile, not a rocket. Right. And after World War II. Because missiles are the first things human beings think to do with rocket power. Right. Is it's, blow somebody else up. It's long-range artillery. Okay. Um, <laughs> So the Germans obviously were defeated. Von Braun and his team moved themselves at the end of the war from Prussia, northeastern Germany, to Bavaria in order to surrender to the United States and not Russia. So had they surrendered to Russia, we would have had nobody. 
we would have had a few people. The people that started Jet Propulsion Lab were our rocket scientists. One of the NASA centers, Jet Propulsion uh, Lab. Now, okay. but not then. It was an Army center, okay. and they were doing rocketry. So von Braun said to the U.S., you will let me realize my dreams to go to the stars. Well, so he didn't trust the Russians? No, he didn't trust Why not? The, the Russians had a fine space program. Uh, but they were nasty people. If you say so yourself. The aristocracy, and, and von Braun was very much Prussian aristocracy, knew well what's happening to the German so he population. Had, he had insider information yeah. in that relationship. Get out. <laughs> okay. So the Russians came in Even later. Even though we were sworn enemies with the Nazis, he still preferred us to surrender to, no, yes. presuming that he wouldn't put, be put on trial. They didn't put him on trial in Nuremberg. No, there was a very special operation called Operation Paperclip to move all these people more or less illegally into the U.S., give them special status. Bypassing all the war crime trials all and all that, the rest of this. All of that. Operation Paperclip. Yep. Well, how, how quaint. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Man, Jack. fascinating stuff. Man, I have learned something. Well, that's well, that's this is what we do. <laughs> that, that's the motto of Star Talk: learn something for a change. Learn something for a change. <laughs> what I just learned there was it pays to be really smart to the point where you can get away with war crimes. Yeah, basically, even your enemy wants a piece of your mind. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you were that good, I mean, just think of the V2 rocket right. in Nazi Germany. This rocket, I think, is remembered, it, it gets under-remembered for what role it actually played in the history of, of everything. Right. You know, it turns out to have not been important strategically. I mean, it was sort of a terror weapon and it would come out of the sky. You wouldn't hear it. You wouldn't know where it was coming from and a whole block would be destroyed. It was hard to aim them because they went so far and they went out of Earth's atmosphere. And if you look at the total casualties from it versus other ways people were killing each other, it was small. Pretty ineffective. Yeah, well, yeah. But it was an exploration in how to drop a bomb from something that was practically in Earth orbit. Oh, those Germans. I tell you, <laughs> they are something else, aren't they? Ain't they something? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, as, as, as John Logston uh, correctly noted, the V-2 was a, it was a missile, not a rocket. But the fact that it would leave Earth's atmosphere mm-hmm. – travel most of its distance in the vacuum of space and then drop out of the atmosphere, told everybody, wait a minute, if we ever go into space, we better look closely at what's going on with this V2 rocket. And that's why all rockets from science fiction movies from the 1950s, what they look like? They look like missiles. They, no, yes, yes. They, they look like missiles. And when they looked specifically like the V2. Like the V2. They had big fins. Right. They looked like bullets. Right. There was a ladder. You climb up into them. And that's the only way people could think about going into space because that was the only thing that had any chance of actually accomplishing that. Wow. So here we are humans with the whole universe to explore. And the first thing we think of doing with our possible uh, ways of exploring is like, Let's kill some people first. Well, you know? of course, of course. I mean, that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, seriously, when we when we discovered fire, it was discovered by a comedian. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and the first thing he did was set some other dude's foot on fire. <laughs> this is in the, the comedy journals. You read, you read of this research, I'm sure. And, you know, most people think of NASA as a civilian agency because they, you know, they got a space station and they're doing science up there. But, of course, it was born in wartime. Right. Born in reaction to Sputnik. I mean, this is... It's this kind of a, like an early version of the arms race. Yeah, essentially. Well, well I mean, the arms race was going on well, at the, the time. the arms race was still going right, on, but right. a, a derivation of yeah, the it's, arms it's race. A, it's an aspect right. of the arms race, and hence the space race. And right. This is where you get the phrasing space race as a takeoff on arms race, right? And so it's an extraordinary period. And what most people don't know is that the, the Air Force, the Air Force has their own budget for going into space. The people Air said, we don't want war in space. It's already, excuse me, it's like, been there, done that, and they don't tell you about it. <laughs> that's how that. That's There's a how, secret war in space. It's, it's well, in terms of what the Air Force sees as needs to protect us from enemies that might want to influence us on the ground or our assets in space. That's the code word for our satellites. Chuck, we got to take a break. And but when we come back, more of my interview with John Logston, who is a professor of the history of the space program. These 
mystery. To solve them for the good of all men, there is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Kennedy, mm-hmm. ain't that something? Yes. That's, very a spe- ins- that's a speech for you. That's very inspiring. You know what I like most about that speech? What? Uh, is that he said, there is no strife, there is no prejudice in space uh, as of yet. <laughs> in other like- words, when we get there, buddy, <laughs> we're going to make sure all that crap is there. Because we're going to find the, the, the some some alien species that will be our slaves. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a speech given by John Kennedy in Rice Stadium in 1962. And many people remember remember him saying, we'll put a man on the moon, return him safely to Earth. That was in a joint session of Congress a, a year earlier. Right. This speech put it all together. Right. And I chatted with John Logsdon about this and just sort of the politics of the space race and Eisenhower, which preceded Kennedy yes. and transitioned to Kennedy. How did all that work? I asked him about it. Let's check it out. Cool. Sputnik 1 had only one purpose, which was to be in space first. Apparently they knew that that would matter. Well, Khrushchev didn't. The Russian leadership was surprised by the world reaction. So was President Eisenhower. Eisenhower's reaction was, it's no big deal. He's alone thinking that, apparently. (laughs) Uh, Well, he and his close advisors. What was Eisenhower's reaction to all this space stuff? His first instinct is that this shows we can launch satellites to spy on the Soviet Union. He's a military general. What else could he possibly be thinking? He's not thinking, oh, I can explore the universe. Well, more than that, he's a veteran of the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Mm. And say, never again will we be surprised like that. If we have the capability to see what's on the other side of denied areas behind the Iron Curtain, let's do it. We had 13 failures of the first intelligence satellite before the first success. Couldn't do that today. Okay, so Eisenhower, it's a militaristic activity. What he wanted to do was military on one side and an open civilian program on the other side that the U.S. could show to the world and cooperate with the world. So he had a very sophisticated So strategy. the open side was geopolitical posturing then. We have peaceful uses of space. Right. That phrase originated in his administration. Okay. So NASA gets founded under Eisenhower, Eisenhower. 1958. Yeah. But Eisenhower said, let's do a modest, scientifically driven, open program put a person up to see what happens, but I, Eisenhower, don't think there's much value to human space flight. So at the end of his administration, December of 1960, what Kennedy would do was not at all clear as president. Right, because NASA gets founded and there's no real mission statement for it, right? It's just kind of there. Well, do everything. Explore space. Do whatever that is. Yeah, okay. be a leading nation in space. Okay. Uh, right, NASA, so Kennedy's up. And Kennedy's up. We're already supposed to lead the world. Why did his speeches have any value at all? We're supposed to do that anyway. Well, because he saw within three months of taking office that space was an area of visible achievement, which the Soviet Union Right, because he takes winning. office January 1961, and Yuri Gagarin goes up April. April 12th, 61. Three months. Three months later. In his face. Before that, he was very uncertain about what his posture would be. You know, people talk about Sputnik moments. It was really a Gagarin moment that drove the U.S. Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space. space. Right. And eight days later, April the 20th, after the Bay of Pigs, which kind of reinforced the inclination to do something positive and dramatic, Kennedy wrote a memo and asked his advisors to find him a space program that promises dramatic results in which we could win. And the answer came back, moon. They'll go to the moon. Go to the moon. So that was Gagarin in your face. That's it. 
<laughs> so basically, the United States was shamed into going yeah, into space. I think, and in fact, we don't remember it that way, but that's exactly what it was. We reacted. We reacted. To Russia. And and I, I studied carefully, because I have a book recently, uh, Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. And in it, I, I try to put the stuff on the table and say, you want to remember America as pioneers in this, but in fact, almost every decision we made but, was right. reactive to what Russia did or reactive to what Russia said they would do. Yeah. So instead of space, the final frontier, these are the voyages of this. It wasn't that. It was, oh, crap. Oh, Jesus, the Russians are in space. Well, what are we going to do? Oh. It was more that. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's the history through the lens of Chuck Nice, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, but I have to say, literally, that's what, uh, you know, there's the outward uh, appearances, and then there's what's and actually there's going really on. the underlying motivation. <laughs> inside of what people are doing. <laughs> because, so I had not appreciated how big a role the Yuri Gagarin step into space was, because we all remember Sputnik as right. the birth of anything going into orbit at all. And so... You remember the moon landing, right? Of course, yeah. I, I mean, because you were a babe. I, I yeah, was a kid at that time. Yeah. I was I was a kid, but uh, I, I do remember it being a big deal because, let me see, what uh, grade was I in? I was young enough where they, I believe they bought in either a television or a radio. I'm not sure. So they had TVs back then. They did have TVs. <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> no, no. Actually, but, it was a big deal to have a TV that was on wheels. Right. You could and that's what it. it was. It was on a, it was on a cart a or cart, something. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. You had, there was one cart in the whole school right. and you, ha you had to do it. So it's interesting that the space race would begin in this hysterical, reactive way, but then we kind of aligned our ducks and said, let's actually go to the moon. So, so do you think that the lack of competition as it were right now to do something big in space is really what the problem is with america or is it more political I, it's all of the above but let's find out what role kennedy played in this now because kennedy was not president when sputnik was launched right. and so like i said sputnik, so sputnik. Yes. sputnik. <laughs> let's go to my my next clip with john locks and see what he says so kennedy's assassinated we go to johnson what guarantee does anybody have that this epic adventure is going to continue under different leadership? Well, the first thing to know is that Kennedy wasn't sure what he wanted to do at, right at the end of his life. People totally forget he went to the UN September 20th, 63, and said, why not do it together? Really? Formal proposal to the Soviet Union, and he was serious. So seeing whether there's a possibility to turn Apollo into a cooperative undertaking, he was worried about the money, a lot of reasons. By his death, though, Apollo became a memorial to a fallen president, okay. and that was the one space priority of Lyndon Johnson, was to finish Apollo. All right. So that actually constrained, then, what might have been a broader space program. Indeed. Overwhelmingly, the focus was only moon by end of the decade. And there was very little planning and certainly no money for future programs. For anything after or even beside that? No. Yeah, so wow. it became a, it a one-trick pony, really. Yeah. So they basically wanted to just go like, hey, man, it's kind of like a swan song. Let's shoot something up there for Kennedy. You know, like the way they pour something out for the brothers who ain't here. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's, Usually alcohol. Yeah. Right. Let's <laughs> it's never a, milk. Right. Let's shoot a rocket up there for the president. Yeah, let's do one like do one for the Gipper. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, so that's interesting. I don't I don't believe I mean, I you know, John Logston is the historian, not I. And but doesn't mean I can't have an opinion. I don't think Kennedy believed that Russia would join us in going into space. And knowing that he didn't believe it, he still goes on record for the Olive Branch offering. Uh -huh. Then they say no, and they say, well, F y'all, we're going in, you know, we're going to go our own route. And that, that's a way to politically is set yourself up right. for reacting to something without looking like the bad guy. Yeah, because you know your opponent's going to say, screw you. They're the commies, for goodness exactly. sake. What are they, you know, this is after the dude hit his shoe on the podium, right. you know, right. so. How could we partner with you capitalist running dog <laughs> bastards? I, so, I, so so I, maybe for the appearances, it looked honest, but I think politically, it was actually a pretty clever move on his part. That's pretty brilliant, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's, you know, after that, there was Johnson, and then, of course, Nixon comes along, and then we stop going to the moon. And, you know, all the Kennedy supporters, <laughs> like 
to blame Nixon for that. But no, it's it's more it's more interestingly subtle and complex than that. I love the moon. <laughs> <laughs> he made the first really expensive phone call to outer space. He called these dudes, uh, you know, AT&T set up the phone call. I mean, and, and there's the gap. You know, it takes light time, to, you know, radio waves time to get to the moon and come back. But we'll talk more about that after this break. You're listening to Star Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. We're back. You're listening to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I've got Nice Chuck Nice here. That's right. He's being nice today, as he is most of the time. But <laughs> I don't want to see him when he's not nice. No. No one does, <laughs> to be honest. I even cover the mirrors. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, we've today we're featuring my interview clips with John Logston. John Logston's an old friend of mine, and he's, uh, he's professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. That's not why we have him on Star Talk. We have him on Star Talk because he's former director of their space he's founding director of their Space Policy Institute. He's a space historian extraordinaire. Cool. And I write about a little bit of the history of space, but more as an observer, not as the you know, the academic professor right, the historian. Dude. I'm not the historian. I just observe it and just riff on it. And so, you know, we we were talking about the Apollo program as a focus of the American space program. And it's what drove everybody. It drove the spending. It said anything NASA did, it was to get to the moon. Right. Every next dollar they were handed in their budget, it was to get to the moon. Mm -hmm. We need hookers to get to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't spend a night with a hooker, I can't think clearly. If I can't think clearly, we can't get to the moon. So, you know, so we can ask, well, was it worth it? What are the benefits? Now, people like talking about spinoffs. And, you know, I, I, who doesn't love a good spinoff? Everybody loves a good spinoff. You know, they've got astronaut ice cream. Exactly. I prefer mine cold. But if I'm in space, uh, you know, you know what they they should do? Because space is cold. That's right. When you're not facing the sun, add some milk back to it or water and put it out in space Just and stir it. it. <laughs> get me some, get my ice cream cone some again. real ice cream. Don't hand me this room temperature <laughs> stuff that my saliva reconstitutes. But, um, no, but what it did was it forced forced us to think about uh, food, food preservation, right. uh, life support systems. I mean, there's a whole, the, all the surrounding thought that had to go in. Astronauts, uh, mental, mental health, what's it like to be cooped up in a, in a tiny little capsule for days and days and mm -hmm. days with one other person or two other people? Are you friends? Are you, do you have attitude? I call that marriage. <laughs> Truthfully. <laughs> so you get the married dudes to tell you, to, to, to help you out. Things like filtering air with carbon dioxide poison. You know, can, you can be carbon dioxide poisoned if you don't do that right. And so a lot of this was how to make use of materials that you have that you can't swap out. Mm -hmm. So recycling becomes a big issue in space exploration. If you're not otherwise going to go someplace and, and hew out of the mountainside uh, materials that you would just consumed en route there. So there's a huge side of this that, that matters. So astronauts are like the first hippies. Ah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Like, Except they had crew cuts instead of long hair. Right. Uh, but I, there's a whole other side of the spinoff that I don't think people talk about. And I've been talking about it lately. Okay. In fact, I was in front of the House of Representatives, members of the House of Representatives recently talking about this very thing. Did you know that here we are in the 1960s, a turbulent decade? It was bloody. 
kids were getting shot on campus. It was the Cold War in the in in Southeast Asia, and a, I mean a Cold War in the world, and, right. a, and a hot war in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, and That's right. we were losing a hundred servicemen a week. Yet we found time to go to the moon. Man, you know what's funny is that nothing has changed with what you just said, except that we don't go to the moon anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you described is happening okay. right now, except so, we don't. So go to the moon. So that's bad. So that's so that's bad. So what I found was not only. Did, is that just a, a crowning achievement technologically, scientifically, emo emotionally? But in those years that we went to the moon, you know what happened? Uh, and the year plus one year, so from 1968 mm -hmm. to 1973, that five, six-year period, we created the Environmental Protection Agency. That happened after we saw the picture of Earthrise over the lunar landscape. That's we right. went to the moon looking to discover it, and we looked back and we discovered Earth for the first time. Yeah, much to the chagrin of Rick Perry. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the modern-day environmental movement began. Let's find out what uh, – I got another clip with John Loxton just to see what – did Russia try to go there too? Let's find out. Russia decided in August of 64 to go to the moon. Built moon rockets, built a lander, trained a crew. And wasn't their moon rocket more powerful than ours? Uh, it's just about the same. Just, okay. Except it didn't work and ours did. <laughs> I mean, Small detail. There were okay. four launches of the N1 rocket, right. four failures. Okay. And we had been to the moon. So the program got canceled, but there was a very real Russian program. When did it get canceled? Uh, in 72, I think. Oh, so we kept going through 72. Two, right. Apollo 17. Uh, they canceled their moon effort. 72, 73. Then we're done. Uh, we're done. We don't even do Apollo 18. Right. I mean, we had canceled. There were supposed to be 20 Apollos. 20 Apollos. And we stopped at 17. The and enemy it, was defeated. Uh, well, the problem is a problem, but the reality is if you make something a race and you win it, there's no reason to run it over. Right, yeah. There wait. wasn't a strong you scientific <laughs> rationale. You, you've won. You're done. Uh, a lot of people in NASA were scared to death of the risks of the program, and Apollo 13 showed that. We won. Look at that. Yeah. Who knew? So had they still been at it, we probably would have had Apollo 18, Apollo 19, Apollo 20. Yeah. And maybe beyond. So once again, we were reactive and not proactive. So there is no accounting of the history of this that says, we are explorers, we are discoverers. That's why we went to the moon. We're reactors. We're reactors. <laughs> That's what we are. <laughs> we are emotional reactors. More when Star Talk Radio continues with my interview with John Logston and I got in studio Chuck Nice. See you in a moment. Back on Star Talk Radio, Chuck Nice. Yes, my co-host, comedian co-host, and you're tweeting at Chuck Nice Comic. Comic. Uh, funny. <laughs> so you're I'm so a comedian. You I'm... came from a comic strip. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Chuck Nice Comic. All right. Uh, I think I follow you. It's so me and Doomsbury. There you go. <laughs> Chuck Nice Comic. We've been talking about the space program, the space race, and how we won getting to the moon, but we actually had lost almost every other metric of space exploration. Russia had the first satellite, the first living anything, which was a dog, like a... Uh, I didn't know that. You, now, see, you know, the popular uh, uh, convention is that it was a, a chimpanzee. No, no, no. First thing was a dog. dog. And that dog was a, a mutt running around the streets of Moscow. And they put his behind up there in space <laughs> with no plans of bringing him down alive. And uh, so all the animal rights says, that's not right. He didn't have choice. And he didn't... I said, look. He's alive. Look. I said, look. All right. This, this dude died in space. He is the most famous dog since Lassie. That's true. All right? And if you got, they're going to die anyway, and you're going to die in space? That's how I'm, instead of hungry on the streets of Moscow? Excuse me? Exactly. That's how I'm going. I'd rather what? die in space than just be in Moscow. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have <laughs> no, said that. I shouldn't have said that. It was wrong. So here's what happens. So we get to the moon. And we discover Earth for the first time. And in a short period of years, even while there was turbulence, the most, the most violent decade of American history since the Civil War, mm -hmm. 100 years earlier, we take the time and the interest after we see Earth, spaceship Earth, aloft there in the darkness of space. We 
found the Environmental Protection Agency. We ban DDT. We ban, uh, we set in regulation to get rid of leaded gas. The catalytic converter gets introduced. Mm -hmm. The whole earth catalog gets formulated. We saw earth not as the schoolroom globe would reveal it with color-coded countries. We saw earth as nature intended it to be viewed with oceans, land, clouds. On HDTV. (laughs) That was later, later nature. Okay, then we stopped going to the moon because the Russians stopped going to the moon. So that's the evidence that we were not explorers. We were just reactors. I like that. We're human (laughs) Human reactors. reactors. And then, you know, NASA needed another thing to do. And so what do we do next? Uh, Let me go with Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle it was. And let's go back to my interview with John Logston just to get a sense of that transition and why we did it and what its point was. Check it out. Nixon made the decision that characterized the program for 40 years, which is to build the shuttle. Okay. And the shuttle decision also meant we were going to build a space station. That gave the shuttle something to do. They were conjoined at the hip. Conjoined from the at get-go. the hip. Okay. And so then the shuttle gets launched and the space station gets initiated under Reagan. Under Reagan, yeah. 1984. Yeah, yeah. And basically that's all we've done in human spaceflight from 1981 through 2011 is fly the shuttle, build the station. How mm-hmm. many shuttle launches were we supposed to have a year? Uh, when, when the well, yeah, when it was proposed. 30 to 50. So one every week and a half, huh? and it became how many a year? The most ever was nine. I didn't even know it was even that many. Yeah. What did it average out about? Well, there were 135 flights oh, over 30 years. Yeah, so, so do the math. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. What's that? So that's three, three to five. four a year. Three yeah. to four a year. Yeah. yeah. It proved to be an experimental craft, a remarkable technical achievement, but an experimental, very touchy, very difficult I remember in the first launch, the news announced, America has now launched the most complex vehicle ever to go into space. And they said it with bravado. And I said, is that really what you want? <laughs> right. <laughs> Complexity? I mean, we, we on the board said, too complex. Replace it with something simpler, simpler. which is what's happening. Something blunter, yeah. something simpler. Something right. like the Russian, the Soyuz, in spite of the early failures, it's is one of the... Remarkably uh, reliable for it has a long time. Three moving parts or right. something. Right. <laughs> what, what's with the soil? They're all built out of cast iron, I think. Iron. Well, I mean, it's well, an exaggeration, okay. but it's a very sturdy, robust spacecraft, not a temperamental prima donna. Like a Lamborghini. Yeah. You know, when right. it's working, it's great, but when it's not working, it's in the garage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Russians, we, it works. That's right. all. It doesn't look good. It doesn't. It, it's, it works. Looks like a bunch of oil drums welded together <laughs> with a rocket strapped to its back. So, but it works. It, it, it worked. And so that's what's fascinating to me is the space age gets born in 1957 and we land on the moon. How many years later? 12 years later. Hmm. We go from no space anything to footprints on the moon in 12 years. And from 1981 to now, what we've been doing is driving around the block, <laughs> right? Just, just there it is. And so people complain that, well, there's not much interest in the manned space. Well, they're not actually going anywhere. Right. If they were the ones going to Mars instead of robots, then you know we'd be talking about them. What, you know, what, what music are they listening to along the way? Right. But in the interim, we wanted to advance us, at least the science frontier. We sent robots. Let's find out more about robots when we get back to Star Talk Radio. We're back on Star Talk Radio, and we're talking about the history of the space program. Mm hmm. Chuck, you're you're a space baby, right? I am a space baby. Yeah, this yeah. whole thing started kind of like when I was born. Well, it didn't start when <laughs> I was born. It ended when I was born. <laughs> no. Apparently, the no, no. Of the there end. are chapters. There's we're going to the moon, and then we're going to drive around the block. Right. But in all fairness to the shuttle era, it showed that we can like build huge structures in zero g. The space station is the size of a football field. I mean, it's just huge. Right. And we can live and work in space. Not. That, 
quite to the numbers originally imagined. Um, in fact, there was a prediction in the 1980s, by the year 2000, 50,000 people will be living and working in space. Wow, they were uh, just a little bit <laughs> off. Three orders of magnitude off. <laughs> <laughs> there were three on exactly. the space station at the time. So there's some failed dreams there, but uh, you can't fault people for wanting to try. And remember, of course, there were two tragic shuttle disasters. We lost a Challenger on the way up. Right. We lost Columbia on, on the, the way, way down. down. Right? Yeah. These are the two tricky parts of any mission. And same, one, same with flying an airplane. I was going to say, it's the same thing when you get on a jet. Take off or Take land. Take off and land. That's yeah. where all the problems are. Going 600 miles an hour at 41,000 feet. Never hurt anybody. Nope. <laughs> Not a problem. You don't even know you're doing you it. You don't even know you're doing it. So, uh, by the way, all the while, the scientific community is conducting science. There's always been a fraction Emphasis on fraction of this of the NASA budget given to science. The the long term average is about twenty to thirty percent of its budget has gone to science missions. So in fact, we had wrote, there were there were like landers on the moon before humans went there. Did you hear about it? No, no. because we were sending people. See, when people go, you don't pay attention to the robots, right? Because nobody gives ticker tape parades to robots. So, and you know, I hear the robots are a little upset about that. <laughs> in fact. They might take, you know, what's the the net in 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 the Terminator? Skynet, Skynet might. <laughs> Skynet might take over. They've baby. been notified. Has been duly notified. Rise of the machines. Watch out, people. Uh, but there's a long string of missions. We we sent missions to uh, through the 1960s and into the 70s. We sent um, Explorer One was the first U.S. satellite. But we had Mariner, all right, and we had you know there was a, Russians went to Venus, uh, and and those were called the Venera spacecrafts. That oh, sounds by, good. Oh, by the way, the genitive form. The, the genitive form of if you're of Venus is venereal. Venereal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, but we we said we're not going there. So I, we invented like you, you keep my shuttle away from your venereal. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> so uh, so we so we had sort of missions that went to Mars, uh, robotic missions that were flybys, a couple of landers and Viking, and uh, we, we have reconnaissance orbiters that photograph the Martian surface. Good stuff, and we continue not only with rovers but with telescopes launched into orbit by NASA. And the top of that list would be Hubble. Hubble, of course, and so. What's interesting is in the face of these disasters, you always ask, well, that'll end the program because we have seven dead astronauts. But each time that happened, it didn't. Right. The widows and the widowers of the, the spouses of those who died would stand up one by one in front of microphone and said, it is a reminder that the frontier is a risk. And often you put your life at risk. Right. But if... The act of losing a life meant you should never go further. We would still be in the cave. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what that's every what one of them is. says to a person. It's like you're allowing me to die in vain now. Exactly. That's basically what it comes down to. Exactly, Chuck. That was the perfect uh, analysis of how all that happened. And so, so – Basically, the space program not only serves a geopolitical purpose, an emotional purpose, a technological purpose, a scientific purpose, uh, there's also a, a symbol. It serves as a symbol for who and what we are and who and what we can be. Mm -hmm. Let's find out John Logston, who studies this professionally. Let's get his reaction to this notion. Cool. All things considered, when you add up all the disasters versus the achievements, how do you view that? How do you... Oh, I, I think on net, the space program has had multiple great benefits for this country. It's been a symbol, remains a symbol of something we do well. And so when we don't do well, we're surprised and disappointed. I think it, it is a it's symbol set, it's of... It's a performance of, standard for yeah, us. Of American excellence. You think, what are our symbols of American patriotism? The flag, the bald eagle, and some sort of space image. Human on the moon, shuttle launch, Hubble image. Those are the things that make us feel good about being American. Hmm. Yeah, symbols. So let me ask you, what of the whole space program, what rises up in your heart and mind? I think I'm most astounded. No, no, by I just realized I'm asking a comedian this, so maybe you could be I'm finding the most comedic moment, like when, the astronaut, <laughs> when they tripped on the moon or something. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. No, for me, it's Hubble. Uh, uh, really? To, to see in such clarity 
the places that are unimaginable. The universe was brought into our backyard. Exactly. And I'm I'm still astounded by the the pictures that I I love see. you for it. You know something? The Hubble images are so extraordinary. Even as scientific record of our exploration of the universe, it was so extraordinary that they did not require captions in order for you to embrace all their majesty. I know, but I took the liberty of writing some anyway. <laughs> oh, you wrote the captions. Okay. <laughs> uh, for me, it was Apollo 8. It was oh, really? an uncelebrated mission. Well, no, yes, it was celebrated, but it was the first time we ever left Earth en route to any place else in the universe. They're the, they went to the moon, went around it, photographed Earthrise. Nice. And that's what birthed our entire environmental movement. It enabled humans to care about who we are and what our relationship is to this universe. Nicely done. Hey, Chuck Nice here. You're listening to Star Talk. And when we come back, Neil and I return for our final segment to answer your cosmic queries about the universe. See ya in a minute. We are going to get to questions once people get online, once they know that we're here and they pop online. Cosmic queries. This is a normal thing we do on Star Talk Radio. Absolutely. Yeah. And questions uh, from people. So people are typing in right now. People are typing in right now, and they'll just they'll make their little replies and uh, their comments. And as they come through, I will give them to you. Okay. And you can. Uh, in the meantime, I just talk smack. Right. In the meantime, <laughs> and normally, you know, normally what happens is we 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 filter these questions. Yeah. So, or I filter them. Uh, the cool thing about this is I have no idea what anybody's going to ask and uh, whatever comes through. So whatever you want to know. Bring it on. Just br bring it on. <laughs> Go ahead. Make my day. So, and, and before we do that, I should also let you know that um, for those of you who are interested, uh, you know, everything that we do, no matter what it is, we have now a site called StarTalkAllAccess.com, which is a subscription site where you can subscribe. Everything we do, you'll receive commercial free. In addition to that, you'll receive videos of all the podcasts that we do. In addition to that, there are interviews that you do, Neil, with very famous people that never make it to anywhere. Yeah, they're on the cutting room floor. They're on the otherwise. cutting room floor, and we'll have those there. And in addition to that, if that is not enough, you we also have exclusive original content that can only be found on All Access and when you subscribe, if that is not enough, you can watch us on Apple TV, Amazon Fire, and Roku. And you get uh, a Ginsu knife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, if you ask now. All right, so what do you have? Are they coming in yet? Sir, yes. uh, I'm not even going to pronounce your name. Uh, do that on like purpose. Yashavantha Tamamakuru says, okay. uh, any advances in the field of interstellar travel as we have discovered seven new exoplanets? Yeah, so he want, you, what, you want to leave Earth? He, want, he wants <laughs> to get out of here. He's like, I got to get out of here now. <laughs> I heard Goldilocks zone, and I, I'm like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, so the problem is the fastest spaceship we've ever launched, the, the, the fastest thing, if you aimed it for the closest exoplanet, mm -hmm. forget the other seven, right. let's go to Proxima Centauri. It's called Proxima because it's close. Right. It's the closest. is why this, we gave, gave it that name. Uh -huh. It is four light years away because oh. the other one is, what is it, 40, 50 light years? I forgot right. the number, but it's tens of light years. Proxima Centauri, right there. Right. Aim your fastest thing we have ever launched. Take you 70,000 years. Oh, let's go tomorrow. So you got to figure out how to defy your biology right. or invent a wormhole. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on the wormhole. Okay. Not cryostasis? No. Uh, and then make a movie and yeah. wake up. And right. We wake up 70,000 years later, right? <laughs> and, you know, of course, here's the thing. You only have a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> Some reason in the movies, go to sleep for seventy thousand. Wake up, oh, I might need to. That's shave. not the only issue in the movie. They never pee or poop in movies. Exactly. Right? Okay. Right. There are other issues. Uh, there are other reality. Issues. Right. right. All right. Okay. What else you got? All right. Here we go. Let's uh, let's move down and see what we got interesting here. Hello, Doctor Tyson. This is uh, Dichrit Inswig. Kaya. Uh, hello, Dr. Tyson. I'm so sorry for butchering your name. I know I did. Uh, hello, Dr. Tyson. We're going to bring in a name reader, and yes, then you pick up the question after, okay? Lord and Lady Fontra... Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Dr. Tyson, can you talk about the articles you've written that have appeared in any peer review uh, journals uh, along those lines? Yeah, sure. You have, yeah. Yeah, I have a, a not as many as many of my colleagues who right. do that exclusively, mm -hmm. um, but I, I had a prediction some years ago uh, published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, right. uh, which are shorter, faster communication that might have impact to affect the work of others, uh -huh. where I made a prediction that there might be 10 times as many galaxies out there uh -huh. than what our then catalogs would show. Right. And at the time, some better telescopes were brought to bear on it, and they found like three or four times as many galaxies. Yes. Not the full up 10. Not the full 10. It still felt good. It, pr it prompted some searches and, right. and, and a way to find them. There, and recent evidence actually comes much closer to my original prediction. So, so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. That's one example of stuff that I'd done. But it's, it's, it's not secret publications. There's something called Google Scholar. Okay. It's not your normal Google search engine, but just type in Google Scholar, go there, and type in my name, and you'll see all my You'll see all stuff there. Oh, that's very cool. There you have it. All right. I also study the structure of the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, uh, really? And the core and the center and things nice. like that. So it's in there, if you're interested. Uh, the core of the center of the Milky Way, if I'm not it's mistaken. It's a black hole lurking there, yes. Oh, no, I thought it was caramel and creamy nougat. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. Next. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't help it, man. I'm sorry. Here you go. Uh, Let's go lightning round because we don't have much time. We don't have a lot of time. Uh, Dr. Tyson, I want to do exactly what you do. What did you study uh, to be where you are right now? I studied physics and math, both of which constitute the language of the universe. Okay. In the same way, you want if you go to China, you learn Mandarin, you speak to people there. Mm -hmm. You learn Spanish to go to Spain, you speak to people there. Right. You want to speak to the universe and understand what it's telling you, right. you got to speak its language. And that's math. It's ma math and physics, basically, the uh -huh. foundations of, of, of the sciences. And so, um, so that's what I did. So I majored in physics. Sweet. In college, and then got a PhD in astrophysics. And then you are conversant. Then, but I do these other things. I write books and this sort of thing. So I think a lot about how people learn Mm -hmm. and how they pay attention. And so I fold in what I know with what it is to share that love. Then I'm just doing what Carl Sagan said you do when you're in love. You want to tell the world. Oh, how romantic. Yeah. Next, go. All right. Hey, Chauncey, Heath Chauncey. Uh, first of all, what's up? And secondly, uh, he says, Dr. Tyson, moon or Mars? Oh, uh, I mean, that's I, I love that because the whole question is implicit in those two. There you go. Where you want to go first? There you go. Moon to Mars. You go to back Mars. to the moon, go to Mars, but it's harder. And do you have the money? Can right. you do it yet? Can we do the moon first? And you can do that in a new cycle because it only takes three days to go to the moon. You hang out, come back. You're back in a week. Mars is years. So I'm saying... I'm I'm a contrarian here, not a contrarian. I have a, I'm driving in a different lane. Okay, my lane is we should turn the whole solar system into our backyard. Wow, with a lineup of booster rockets, mm -hmm. take two from here, three from there, that gets you to Mars. Right, one from there, two from there, that gets you to an asteroid. Right, we, we should not be thinking of destinations. We th should be thinking of capabilities. Wow, and if you think of capabilities as a goal, right, then the entire solar system becomes your backyard, and nothing sits out of reach. Hot damn, that was good. I got it. Mic drop. Pen drop. Pen drop. All right. All right, let's move on. Um, okay, so Ali Yaya, Yaya wants to know this. Can humans develop to be higher and smarter creatures? Can we develop that? So I don't see why not in principle. Okay. It's just that the brain remains such a mystery to us. We don't really have a good explanation for consciousness, much less what's going on in your brain for it to become intelligent. Right. We know what can make you really not intelligent, okay? So <laughs> true. Because almost any chemical influence on the brain makes you sort of less capable than other than no influence on the brain, okay? When you do things like alcohol and drugs and things that people, people do. Right. Under those influences, that's not when you want to write down the rocket formula, right? So, so in this, um, I would say there could be a day where we find out that these neurosynapses are your analytic center, and this is where your math center is, and this is where your artistic center is, and I want to be a better artist. Well, stimulate that or, right. or rebuild this. Right. I, I don't see anything in principle from standing in the way of that ultimately being discovered one day, unless intelligence is so complex, so 
is so distributed in all the neurosynapses that it's hard to just point to it. We can't, say, lo- can't locate, locate localize it. it. Localize it. It, right. it. it could be something much more uh, intricate than how I'm making it sound at this moment. But sure, you'd want it. You'd want that to happen. Yeah, and then there's so also that we can become better shepherds of our own fate. I was going to say there's also the integration of technology into the human brain that may be the next evolution of who we become. Or why do you have to put it in the brain? Just leave it out here. Right? Open right. my brain. That's right. You're right. right. Stop messing with my brain. Stay on the phone, damn yeah, it. Right. People Stay say on the phone. People say one day we'll plug the USB into your neck, and right. I'm saying this is kind of already that. Right. Right. It's but it's not plugged into my neck. Right. You can get knowledge from the world. Right. All right. right here. So, right here in the palm right of your hand. I got my neck alone. One last okay. question from uh, Yasha uh, Vanta. Yasha Vanta, uh, who says, "Hey, Dr. Tyson, I'm from India. Please, will you run for president?" <laughs> India? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, wait, wait. I, it, what? I mean, I'm pretty sure he means here. <laughs> but that'd be pretty funny. It's just like, will you run for president of India? Is that a he or a she? Yeah, uh, I don't know. What's the first name? Yashavanta. 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 The Thaws, I think, are female. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But, so, uh, no, I actually, on my website... I have. Uh, <laughs> I was asked by the. I was asked by the New York Times uh-huh. back when Congress was at an impasse, and they said, "Let's ask people who are not politicians if they have solutions to this." Because clearly, the, the politicians don't. Okay. So they asked like a musician, and this, and I asked. I'm like the scientist. They asked, right. and I. And so the question is, what would you do if you were president? And my answer was, and is, and still is, posted on my website, not my Facebook page. I actually have a website. That's how old-fashioned I am. Uh-huh. He said, "What if I were president? This is what things would be." And in there, it says, "If I were president, I would not be president." <laughs> <laughs> I have. I don't have interest in leading people. Right. My interest as an educator and especially as a scientist is educating people right. so that they can make as an informed decision as they can when they elect who they want to represent them. Nice. If you just went around swapping leaders back and forth, you haven't solved the electorate problem. Wow. Okay? So the real problem with America is we are too dumb to pick good leaders. No, well, no, it's, no, mm. no, that, no, no. Let me say it differently. Okay? The problem is, Go ahead. if we we have dis if we have dysfunctional politicians right it's because we have a dysfunctional electorate right because the electorate puts them in office mm-hmm. and if you say i hate this guy then vote him out right. okay you right. vote for these people in a democracy in india the world's largest democracy all yes. right yes you, we can control this stuff it's not some king brought down from the ages where you can't get rid of him and in the old days the only way they got rid of him was how off with your head. Off with your head, okay? Uh, so so, so I'm just saying I would rather I would rather disseminate knowledge, wisdom, and insight to all who I can so that when they make their political decision, whoever they vote for, it's as informed a decision as they possibly can make. Wow, that is good, good stuff. Uh, we are out of time, and and I know, hey, Joel and uh, Gabriel and Ali and uh, Nimral and must have known that we couldn't have gotten all the questions. Leonard and Carol and Josh and you guys have some great questions, but they're very involved, and you know, I'm this, sort of this was live, this and was live. so sorry to bust into your day this way, right? Um, but, but you know what, we're going to get all this stuff on a regular Star Talk because this we're going to keep. These we're going to keep this and those questions. We're going to keep this. We're going to keep those questions. We'll do a whole star talk. We'll do a star talk just Cosmic off the queries. questions that you guys have here. That's great for new Good. cosmic queries. And uh, of course, everything that we do can be found uh, commercial free along with um, exclusive original content on StarTalkAllAccess.com. Thanks for listening to Star Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Many thanks to our comedian, our guest, our experts, and I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Until next time, I bid you to keep looking up. <laughs>